Kia ora, you're with The House and I'm Johnny Blades. It was a morning spent discussing conflict, human rights violations, terrorism and mass displacement. Parliament's Foreign Affairs and Trade Select Committee this week received briefings from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the situation in some of the world's conflict zones, including Myanmar, for which the Ministry's Chief Executive and Secretary of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Chris Seed, didn't have a lot of good news for the MPs. Uh, the civil conflict of um, the, the coup has now morphed definitely into a civil war and there you know, were three significant parties to it, the military, um, the, um, uh, the ethnic militias uh, and the anti-coup um, uh, movement. As I say, the outlook uh, looks um, very gloomy. New Zealand has placed sanctions on officials from Myanmar's military regime, but it maintains a diplomatic presence in the Southeast Asian country. The question of how New Zealand engages with Myanmar at this difficult time was raised by the Green MP, Golris Garaman. Are we sort of actively engaging with how um, we can uphold the democrat, you know, I don't know if we can uphold a government that was elected but never governed, but in terms of uh, legitimising through our behaviour, whether that's having a diplomatic presence or our UN dealings, legitimising the coup-led government, and, and whether that's a consideration in terms of the diplomatic presence and how we engage or use that presence. No, it's absolutely a, a critical element uh, of how we think about engaging uh, or being present there, so that's why we have a charge to fear uh, in Yangon, not an ambassador. Um, so that, that's one level. Um, in, the, in the UN system, the um, former governments, the properly elected governments representative remains sitting in the seat in New York, and so we, uh, we deal with them. There are constraints on um, our, for our, our dealings, ministers' dealings with um, representatives of the, the military government. New Zealand has an aid programme in Myanmar, which Chris Seed and his delegation were asked about by the National MP Jerry Brownlee. And how much money do we put in? We've put in about 30 million since the coup, so since 2021, 30 million in development and humanitarian funding targeted at vulnerable communities. And so what is an example? Well, what are the projects? So there's one around, uh, so some of it will be humanitarian, so responding to disasters, um, so using international agencies on the ground or using lo in, local NGOs to get um, uh, water uh, and food supplies and blankets and stuff like that, funding that. Uh, we, we do a piece around the uh, solar, the solar contribution. Uh, what else have we got? got, got? The development funding, uh, sorry, the humanitarian funding is the, is the main vehicle and we, we fund that through uh, uh, sort of multilateral humanitarian agencies and NGOs, as the Secretary says. The committee also received an update on the situation in Afghanistan, from where New Zealand has assisted almost 2,000 people to travel to Aotearoa since the Taliban takeover in August 2021. These people are Afghan nationals who helped the New Zealand Defence Force or other New Zealand government agencies in Afghanistan, as well as their immediate family. The operation to help those people leave has come to an end, but briefings on the general situation continue, even if there was some confusion between Chris Seed and Jerry Brownlee. I understand that the committee's been dissatisfied in some way with um, some of the material provided, so um, I've come to address that issue. No, um, I'll be clear, it was the... Uh, repeated requests from your department to close off the briefing as uh, uh, an open briefing on our agenda. So we have an open agenda item uh, which we can return to periodically. It's a standing order stuff for yep, us. Yep, yep. 
and uh, but uh, uh, NFAP had been requesting that the, the brief that now that we remove the uh, standard briefing that's no and we were told it was no longer necessary. Well, the point is that we decide what's necessary, not the department. As Brownlee points out, it's up to Parliament who it should be briefed by and how often. After all, it's Parliament's role to hold government to account, and that includes all government departments. At this point, however, Chris Seed clarified that during the Afghanistan operation, a ministry team of 40 was providing monthly briefings to the committee with plenty of data and detail. After that operation was closed down, we uh, looked to move and you know, talk to the Minister's office about moving from doing those monthly briefings because, of course, we didn't have 1,700 people moving across the border. As I understand it, what we were proposing is that we would not, we couldn't continue to brief on an operation we were no longer involved with. In terms of providing the committee with um, updates um, about the situation in Afghanistan, of course we remain available to brief on that. But I'd also say that we didn't want to move away from doing it on an absolutely monthly basis, um, simply because um, you know I've got a division of. 10, uh, running it with seven posts across 70 countries, and um, I'm running about three task forces, and so it's just a sort of a bit of a prioritisation of, of effort. In terms of ongoing relations with the Afghan government, it's tricky. As Jonathan Kerr, MFAT's Divisional Manager for Middle East and Africa Division, pointed out to the MPs. I mean, I think in terms of the um, engagement that the Taliban has with the outside world, you know, they are, including by New Zealand, designated as a terrorist entity. So our current um, policy settings do not permit engagement with the Taliban, um, irrespective of internal changes of leadership. Now, talking of organisations designated as a terrorist group by New Zealand, the committee has been asked to add another one to the list. The committee heard from the Iranian-born academic Morteza Sharifi on his petition urging the Prime Minister to designate Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist entity. So, you know, the reason for establishment of this organisation was to protect the <coughs> Islamist regime in Iran in the first place. It is not really there to protect our borders, although they've got a military branch. But they do have a serious role in cracking down on dissent and protests uh, within our borders. Uh, but it doesn't end there, as you might be well aware. They do have international teams to spread this terror and fear uh, internationally. You should be cognizant of the fact that just last year, two New Zealanders were taken hostage in Iran. I'm really happy that they are out of the country now and safe in New Zealand. Uh, but we do not really know what has happened behind closed doors. There wasn't much argument from MPs, especially Jerry Brownlee, who, it transpires, is particularly engaged on issues relating to Iran. Thank you so much. And before I finish, I would just like to thank Honourable Jerry Brownlee because of his participation in our protests on Parliament grounds. I know from his very own words that he only took part in two protests in his political career, and those two times belong to the Iranian cause. Dr. Morteza Sharifi there, wrapping up the Foreign Affairs and Trade Select Committee's morning of discussion about terrorist organisations and conflict zones. Now, talking of conflict zones, let's look at question time in the House. For opposition parties, Question Time is one of their regular prime opportunities to grill the government in public. 
As you probably know, this is when things can get rowdy in the chamber. So it may be a surprise to learn there's actually some firm guidelines on how these 12 daily questions should proceed. So on that, I had a chat with the shadow leader of the House, National MP Michael Woodhouse, on how the questions are allocated and who gets to ask them, at least from the main opposition party's point of view. Yeah, each party has allocated a set number of questions according to the proportionality of their presence in Parliament. Uh, For us, that's meant that every day we have about four or five primary questions, and then there is a set number of supplementary questions that we can use at our discretion on either those questions or any of uh, another party's questions. So we would have about 22 or 23 questions each day, supplementary to the main question that we ask, and that's allocated broadly in uh, the pecking order. So the leader would um, possibly have seven or eight supplementary questions to follow his question to the Prime Minister, which is a set piece every day. Nearly every day the finance spokesperson will ask the Minister of Finance. And so that leaves a relatively small number of questions, only two or three each day, for other spokespeople to examine the issues that go on in their areas. Supplementaries, though, is that a bit fluid? Because, for instance, you know, Christopher Luxon may not use as many as he could, so therefore do they just go to other members? Well, well the, uh, the reality is it's more likely to be the other way around. And uh, so he is the leader. He is free to ask as many questions as he likes. He's guided by a, a number in his head and generally sticks to that. But the more likely scenario is that he might go one or two over, which in impacts the subsequent questions in question time. But if you've got the Prime Minister on his feet and under pressure on a certain issue, then you wouldn't want to constrain the Leader of the Opposition from continuing to examine that issue. So uh, it's fluid in that regard, and the whips behind the Leader uh, will be um, doing the numbers every question and making sure that the subsequent uh, questioners know how many supplementaries they've got to, uh, to go. So the whip has to keep a tally? Whip is very diligent in doing the maths every question time, and you'll see a little bit of activity behind uh, his chair where he, uh, or, or the junior whip, um, may need to go and have a chat with a future questioner and say that their allocation has gone either up or down. The other thing that happens sometimes is that uh, in his estimation, the Speaker may award uh, uh, extra questions. That was something that Speaker Mallard did a lot of, and Speaker Rurafi doesn't do it quite as much, but occasionally, if he's not satisfied with the way in which the Minister is responding to a question, there may be extra supplementaries allocated at his discretion. How much do you think has question time changed um, since Trevor Mallard was Speaker to now with Adrian Rurafi? Oh, quite markedly. And uh, and each speaker has their own style. That's, that's one of the really good parts of the way we have a presiding officer system. Uh, but it, And I have been publicly critical of the speaker... Uh, Mallard, who uh, it felt really like a classroom, and um, the standing orders were rigidly adhered to. Uh, Adrian Rurafi has taken a different approach, uh, where he's more relaxed about whether or not there's more than one substantive leg to a question, uh, and the degree to which questions and answers could contain assertions or inferences that are technically not um, allowed in standing orders. His approach is, if you want a better answer, ask a tighter and more precise question. He will be less inclined to give relief to a minister if, indeed, there was a a direct question answered that he asked that he believes wasn't addressed. 
And I think that has led to a much more fluid question time. It has more atmosphere to it. It's occasionally rowdy. It's but a bit chaotic at times, isn't it? Because it, doesn't he, by that same token, if the question is going to have inferences or impunations, he's going to let the minister respond in a way that's equally... That's that right. Sense. If you ask a political question, you're going to get a political answer and you need to accept that with good grace. Uh, the one thing that he has rigidly adhered to uh, that uh, Speaker Mallard was uh, a stickler for was uh, absolute silence when a question is being asked, and I think that's a very good thing. It acts as a circuit breaker when you have a lot of noise uh, and interjections in an answer. Then expecting uh, quiet while the subsequent question is asked is a, is a good circuit breaker that just calms everybody down um, and and enables both him and the minister to hear the question clearly, and I think that uh, is the one of the good things that Speaker Mallard did in his time that Adrian Rurafi has continued. That's Nationals' Michael Woodhouse, the shadow leader of the House. And you've been listening to The House, a programme produced with funding from Parliament's Office of the Clerk. Kia pai tōra.